Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly Project. To get started, I apologize for the poor audio quality of the last episode. I went back and re-recorded it if you want to give it another chance. Second, periodically I receive submissions from the website, which I appreciate and try to respond to, but some of the submissions are blank or the email address entered isn't valid. So if some of you have contacted me there and I haven't responded, it's not because I'm ignoring you, I promise. It may be because the Squarespace submissions form is a bit wonky, or just typos, but if I haven't gotten back to you there, just send me an email directly at cassisbellyguy at gmail.com, and I promise I'll respond. Anyway, on to the actual show. In this episode, we will cover the operation to free Mussolini, the Italian campaign until January 1944, and the state of Italy in late 1943. So let's begin episode 38, The Italian Slog. Ah have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? After Mussolini was arrested by the Carbonieri, he was taken to their barracks and placed under arrest. His stay at the police barracks did not last long, however, as he was soon taken to the Hotel Campo Imperatore in the Gran Sasso d'Italia, a mountain retreat high in the Apennines, reachable only by a funicular railway up the steep mountain slope. This was completely unknown to Hitler, or German intelligence though. As far as they knew, 
Mussolini had disappeared after his arrest, and rumors flew about his location, some saying he was in Spain, some that he had killed himself, and others that he was disguised as a commoner. Hitler said one SS lieutenant colonel, Otto Scorzeni, on the task of tracking down El Duce and rescuing him. Lieutenant Colonel Scorzeni was a formidable and fascinating figure with striking features, most notably the long scar he bore on his left cheek, which he received during a fencing duel in college. He had grown up in Austria and joined the military relatively late in life, at the age of 31, but would go on to become a daring commando leader. He initially served on the Eastern Front with the SS Das Reich Division. While fighting in the East, he received a shrapnel wound that got him sent to the rear to recover. While in recovery, he was charged with training up what was essentially an SS commando or special forces unit that would become the 502nd SS Jaeger Battalion. Their first mission was to parachute into northern Iran and convince or assist local dissidents to sabotage the Trans-Iranian Railway, which was bringing American-made supplies into the Soviet Union. After the war, he would actually go on to be an agent of the Mossad, carrying out hits against enemies of Israel. His exploits earned him a reputation as an effective commando leader, and thus he was selected to rescue Mussolini. Colonel Scorzeni combed through leads and reports of Mussolini's location, following up with many false starts, but eventually got lucky when Sigin intercepted a report from the Italian Ministry of Home Affairs, which read, Security precautions around Gran Sasso d'Italia have been completed. He knew immediately what this referred to and began formulating a raid to rescue the disgraced Italian dictator. The Italians had made sure to cover their tracks, though. The entire staff of the hotel had been fired without notice, and all tourist information on the resort was stripped from shelves in Rome and elsewhere. When Scorzeni began what we would today call open-source research, there was surprisingly little to work with. The only real intel he had to plan his mission were aerial photographs taken in preparation for the raid. The aerial reconnaissance identified what appeared to be a small airstrip near the hotel, which Scorzani, aided by Kurt Student, chief of airborne forces, determined to be the only real entry point. It would be too difficult to race up the steep slopes of the mountain, so he determined to take the airstrip by force with glider troops. The date for the raid was set for Sunday, September 12th. That day, 12 aircraft pulling one glider each and a total of 108 men took off from the town of Practica de Mara, as they approached the hotel, they peered out the window at their target and realized with dismay that the airstrip was merely a ski run. It would be a bumpy landing. Scorzeni and his men braced themselves on the crossbars and waited for the impact. It finally came, and the glider slid across the grass, splintering on rocks and small outcroppings, but they survived the crash. Scorzeni and his men leapt from their ruined glider and rushed the hotel grounds. The Italians were already pouring out of the hotel, brandishing weapons of their own, and the situation was, unsurprisingly, tense. Fortunately, the police commander told his men to give up without fighting. There was no need for them to die for the sake of Mussolini, despite their orders to kill him if any type of rescue was attempted. After several minutes of searching the hotel, Scorzeni burst through the doors of room 201, where he found the former dictator. Heil Duce, he announced. Duce, the Fuhrer, sent me. Duce, you are free. Scorzeni quickly hustled Mussolini off the hilltop and got him on an aircraft for Germany as fast as he could. The raid had been spectacular and a success, and not a single shot was fired. No longer a prisoner of his own countrymen, Mussolini immediately declared his own successor state to the dictatorship, 
the Italian Social Republic that would govern in the north of the country. By mid-October, it had its own army, composed of troops still loyal to him, and led by Marshal Graziani, who you may remember from the early North Africa campaign. This new German puppet state would quickly descend into chaos itself. The unrepentant fascists were pitted not only against Allied troops, but against a population that thoroughly despised them leading to all but civil war, and which would have long-lasting social and political consequences well beyond the end of the war. You could probably argue that the years of lead in Italy, which lasted until the late 80s, were a direct result of this period. By the time of Mussolini's rescue, the Allies were already fighting their way up the Italian peninsula. Montgomery's 8th Army had crossed the Straits of Messina and were driving eastward across the foot of the peninsula to the Adriatic. Six days later, on September 9th, General Mark Clark had landed the 5th Army at Salerno, about 150 miles further up the coast. At the same time, the post-fascist Italian government was embroiled in chaos. The Germans had occupied Rome and the northern two-thirds of the country and assumed control. The legitimate government, including King Vittorio Emmanuel, fled south and sought refuge with the Allies. The lack of leadership and vague chain of command for the Italian army caused it to dissolve, essentially overnight. Over a million men threw off their uniforms and merged back into the general population. The Italian fleet, facing a similar predicament, sailed into Allied arms per the armistice, leaving their home ports ripe for the picking. The British 1st Airborne Division secured their former moorings in the heel of Italy. Nearly the entire Italian fleet made it to Malta, only the battleship Roma falling to German aerial attack en route. The dissolution of the Italian government had ripple effects throughout the Mediterranean. First, as mentioned already, the Germans occupied the country and disarmed or subdued Italian troops wherever necessary. Second, all former Italian territory now fell into German hands, either directly or through puppet states. Italian-occupied France, Yugoslavia, and Greece all now fell under much less tolerant German occupiers. In France, this meant the former refuge of French Jews was no longer safe from the SS. In northern Italy, there was now the unusual situation in which thousands of Allied prisoners were released from camps and had to be rounded back up again. Sardinia and Corsica were abandoned, and a free French force actually landed in Corsica to liberate the island. The greatest opportunity from Italian capitulation outside of Italy itself was in Greece and the Aegean. In the Ionian Islands, the Italian garrisons actually turned on the Germans, resulting in a bitter struggle in which the Italians were defeated and all of their officers were put to the death. The British, as always egged on by Winston Churchill, who had a downright fetish for Hellenistic misadventure, attempted landings in the Dodecanese and Cyclades to great embarrassment. Both operations were rebuffed by the Germans, who wound up with a stronger position in the Aegean than they had started with. After both landings had failed in November, over 40,000 troops were sitting in German POW camps, and the Turks were thoroughly discouraged from entering the war on the Allied side. Within Italy itself, Hitler and his generals had to figure out how to defend the peninsula from Allied advances. Rommel argued that the defense should be conducted north of Rome, believing it was too late to salvage the south. Albert Kesselring, on the other hand, firmly believed he could force the Allies to fight the whole length of the country. Italy is an immensely defensible land, with a mountain spine running almost the entire length from north to south, with various ridges and valleys spurring out east and west, providing numerous defensible lines and an abundance of easily defensible terrain. Hitler was set against himself. On the one hand, he was done with the Italians, and saw little gain in committing troops to the country. 
On the other hand, he was loath to surrender ground, and Rome was a huge symbolic objective. Kessering managed to convince the Fuhrer to put him in command of the Italian theater, arguing that it would be easier to defend the South and that retaining Rome was important. As Kesselring was establishing his southern defense with a measly force of seven, mostly understrength, divisions, Montgomery was already securing southern Italy, and the Americans were preparing to land just south of Naples at Salerno. Operation Avalanche, as the landings were codenamed, was the next step in the long, grinding march up the Italian peninsula. The invasion began early on September 9th, when General Mark Clark's 5th Army, composed of U.S. 6th Corps and the British 10th Corps, approached the rough beaches in their landing craft in the early morning darkness. The invasion got off to an inauspicious start when suddenly the Germans announced in English over a loudspeaker, Come on in and give up! You are covered! Then flares burst into the sky, showering the landing craft in light to illuminate them for German machine gunners. Despite this, the Allies pushed forward and made landfall, encountering fairly light resistance, allowing them to quickly establish the beachhead. They did not quickly exploit their success, though. Salerno sits in a bowl surrounded on three sides by hills, making for an excellent location for a defense in depth. Considering their relative lack of manpower, that's exactly how the Germans defended themselves against the invasion. They blocked the only route north leading to the major prize of Naples, and positioned themselves in the surrounding hills, forming a cauldron around the Allies. Then the Germans counterattacked. The 16th Panzer Division led the effort to drive the Allies back into the sea, followed by the 29th Panzer Grenadiers, and were highly effective, but could not overcome American heavy gunfire support from the sea and overwhelming Allied air power. In the meantime, the Allies were able to land additional troops, including British armor and American paratroopers, which shifted the balance irrevocably away from Kesselring. On September 16th, Montgomery's troops driving up from the south made contact with Mark Clark's men, and Kesselring began his withdrawal to his defensive lines in the mountains, what would come to be called the Winter Position. On October 1st, Naples was captured, and lines began to entrench from there across the peninsula to Foggia on the Adriatic coast. The next phase of the Italian campaign would be characterized by short, costly offensives to take small pieces of key terrain, slowly advancing up the coasts. The central mountain spine was considered too restricted, so very few troops were committed to that sector, concentrating the action on the flanks. As Kesselring's men withdrew from Naples to establish their winter position along the Gustav Line, they wreaked havoc on the city. Being an important port city, the Axis engineers did everything they could to ruin its infrastructure in an attempt to render it useless to the Allies. Not only port and industrial logistical sites were blown and mangled, Schools and hospitals were fleeced, and the prisons were opened, unleashing gangs of criminals into the streets. The Axis sought to make the capture of Naples as bittersweet as possible by making the city nearly useless upon liberation. American engineers and civil affairs officers immediately set about rectifying the Germans' preemptive sack of the city. The engineers restored the harbor facilities within a matter of weeks, and the civil affairs teams began distributing food and medical care. North of Naples, Kesselring's engineers began constructing the fortifications with which to hold the Allies south of Rome. They erected earthworks, bunkers, and machine gun nests, mine wire obstacles, and all sorts of defensive contraptions to help hold off the Allied attacks. To support these, artillery and mortars were pre-registered on all of the likely avenues of approach and assembly areas. The Italian campaign would be a defender's dream and an attacker's nightmare. The winter weather only compounded the effects of terrain on maneuver. 
Winter in the Mediterranean is the wet season, and frequent rains caused rivers to swell and roads to turn to muddy ravines where they weren't washed out completely. The whole purpose of the Gustav line was ultimately to defend Rome. Not that the Eternal City was some industrial hub or materially significant key terrain, but rather was a symbolic goal. For the same reasons the Germans wanted to protect it, the Allies wanted to seize it. The loss of Rome would signal to all the occupied nations of Europe and to Stalin that the Axis Empire was falling, that the Allied armies were on the march, and that they were winning. Second, Fighting in southern Italy would force Hitler to expend resources there, siphoning men and material from the east and so satisfying Stalin again. Thus, the military necessity of Italy as a strategic objective was almost beside the point. Capturing Italy, or even Rome itself, offered the Allies very little in terms of getting them to Berlin and defeating Hitler. At least not directly. But for all the aforementioned reasons, it remained an important front to be fought over. Defending the Gustav Line were 13 hardy German divisions. Because they had been drawn from the Central Reserve, or SS divisions, from the east, they were not undermanned and under-equipped units of the Ostier, but rather fully functioning formations with all of their authorized equipment. Many of these formations were not just plain infantry either. They were Panzergrenadiers, Fallschirmjäger, and Panzer divisions. Nine divisions were to occupy the front, with four in reserve, including the illustrious Hermann Goering Division. Arrayed against the German lines were nine Allied divisions of Mark Clark's 5th Army, composed mostly of infantry with one armored division. In this rare instance, the Allies were actually at a material disadvantage, lacking in armor to counter the Germans. Not that it mattered all that much. Armored maneuver was all but impossible in the hilly terrain of the southern Apennines. Compounding the Allies' difficulties was the polynational makeup of the force. The 5th Army's divisions came from across the globe and included Kiwis, Indian Army, Free French Moroccans, Poles, and Brazilians, in addition to the regular British Army and American divisions. This meant complex logistics chains had to be maintained to keep the varied guns, small arms, and vehicles supplied with their unique calibers of ammunition and repair parts. Another quirk of this composition was that it meant the high casualties suffered in the campaign would be borne by very localized populations. The Indian troops all came from the Rajputana, the American divisions came from the Texas National Guard, and the British from the Midlands. Worse, the 5th Army's commander, Lieutenant General Mark Clark, was not universally loved by his subordinates, to say the least. He was considered an upstart by both Commonwealth and American officers. Some of his division commanders were his seniors in age and time in service, one of them even having been his instructor in the past. The Commonwealth generals all had more combat experience than him, and disliked his brash, glory-hunting style. He was also not sensitive to the fact that the Commonwealth units assigned to him had outsized political importance due to their effect on their home countries. If New Zealand troops suffered exceptionally high casualties and got the impression they were being used as cannon fodder, the government in London would have to answer for it in Auckland. The 5th Army was Exhibit A in problems inherent in joint coalition forces. The one big Allied advantage was in their ability to deliver ordnance to their targets via aircraft and artillery. But here again, this proved to be of little utility. The Allies would repeatedly batter German positions dug into hillsides and mountaintops, to no avail. The Germans were dug in deep, and the only sure method to dislodge them was with costly, close-quarters infantry engagements. So that's what the 5th Army did, mostly in small engagements from Naples to Rome. The chosen avenue of approach was the Via Casalina, a roughly 100-mile route 20 miles inland 
running through the Abruzzi Mountains. The army couldn't simply waltz up the highway, though. Each segment had to be cleared, and the heights on either side cleared, and the hills beyond that cleared, in a months-long slog. This was a campaign characterized not by massive, sweeping maneuvers, rather by small-scale actions at the company, platoon, and squad level. Where advances in the Eastern Front were measured in tens of miles, in Italy, they were measured in yards. In the first three months of fighting, they only advanced 30 miles to the Rapido River and Kesselring's Gustav Line. The Gustav Line itself was a line of fortifications running about 50 miles from the Tyrrhenian Sea through the valleys and hills into the Abruzzi Mountains, where it fizzled out among the peaks. The keystone of this defensive network was the Monastery of Monte Cassino, about 20 miles inland and rising imperiously to a height of 1,500 feet over the Leary Valley. The local German commander of the 14th Panzer Corps, General Friedel von Sanger, learned the lessons of Stalingrad well, that a ruined city was all the more defensible than a pristine one, and thus ruined the town at the base of Monte Cassino. The Allies would throw themselves headlong into the labyrinth of bunkers, trenches, mine wire obstacles, and traps set by the Germans in both the valleys and the heights. The first step in breaking through was to cross the River Rapido. Though hardly deserving the title River, the Rapido is more like a large creek, it was an obstacle to the Allies' advance nonetheless. Despite not being the broadest river, it is an energetic little torrent, making it too deep and rapid to simply ford on foot or in vehicles. The 36th Infantry Division of the Texas National Guard would be the main element tasked with taking the far bank, supported by two Commonwealth formations. Upstream, the British would seize the San Ambrosio Heights, overlooking the 36th ID's crossing point, and downstream, they would launch a diversionary attack in Minturno, near the mouth of the river. The operation began in the evening of January 17th, when the British attacked Minturno at the mouth of the Rapido and succeeded in taking the town and establishing themselves on the far side of the river. The British success contributed to their own undoing, because it prompted Sanger to request the reserve of two divisions be released. Kesselring agreed would spell disaster. The British were pushed out of Minturno, and the attack on San Ambrosio was repulsed. In the center, the main attack fared about as well. The 141st and 143rd Infantry Regiments of the 36th ID got absolutely chewed up. They were struck with artillery fire while crossing minefields, causing some men to venture outside the cleared lanes, and generally disorganizing the advance. Artillery fire also destroyed or damaged many of the boats meant for crossing, so that what few were still usable mostly sunk or got swept downstream uselessly. Only a few hundred men out of the entire division actually made it across the river, and nearly all of them were subsequently isolated and captured. The next day, the assault was continued in daylight, resulting in even greater casualties. After several days of trying to cross the river and the addition of the 34th Infantry Division to the fight, the Allies finally succeeded in taking the far bank, but at dire cost. Over 4,000 casualties were sustained between the two divisions, and their success owed mostly to the landings taking place 60 miles north. Having exhausted considerable strength just getting to the Gustav Line, and having their initial probes of it thoroughly rebuffed, Allied commanders knew they needed to do something to turn the flank of the flankless Gustav Line. The terrain was so unsuitable for large-scale airborne operations, preventing a vertical envelopment, so a seaward flank was proposed. As they had done in Sicily, the Allies would do on the Italian peninsula, and so Operation Shingle was born, the landing at Anzio. 
in conjunction with major overland offensives already taking place in the Leary Valley along the Rapido, General Clark hoped the landings would achieve sufficient surprise and shock to dislodge the German defenders. Anzio was selected because it lay between the stalled front and Rome. It sat in even and easy terrain, and it was the nexus of roads that led both north and inland. The idea was to land 110,000 men and have them push inland opportunistically if the Germans did not immediately pressure the beachhead. Though under the overall command of General Clark, the local commander was Major General John Lucas, and he certainly did not possess his superior's confidence. Lucas was pessimistic about the invasion from the start, and expected everything to go wrong. What the Allies needed was a fierce fighter who could wreak havoc in Kesselring's rear and force him to let up on the Gustav line. What they got was something far different. The initial landing on January 22, 1944, went well enough. The Germans were caught completely by surprise, and the first 50,000 men got ashore almost uncontested. The way was open in any direction Lucas wanted, but he did not seize the initiative. Instead, he sat and consolidated his beachhead. This gave Kesselring time to organize a counterattack and attempt to dislodge the invaders. Lucas had squandered his opportunity to turn the course of the war around in the Mediterranean theater. Rather than breaking out, Anzio turned into another slog of a battle in which there was little large-scale maneuver and smaller units slugged it out in the trenches. As January 1944 was ending, the fate of the men at Anzio hung in the balance. Supported by naval gunfire and well supplied by sea, they likely would not be driven into the sea, but they could not break out either. They simply had to survive in their pocket on the Italian coast until the main campaign developed further. In February, Lucas would be sacked and replaced, but it wouldn't be until May that they were able to finally break out into the interior. In the meantime, though, Clark would have to find another way to break the back of the Gustav line. He chose to do that at Monte Cassino. big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Stay big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.